Hey, Resiliency listeners, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 59. My name is Silas West, and I, along with Steve Finley, am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And we have a special episode planned for you today. I'm excited about today's interview with a very dear friend of mine from my days with Word Made Flesh, David Cronick. This may be too much information, but in our early 20s, and the kind of work we did with children who lived on the streets, lice was an unfortunate part of our lives. David had just eradicated lice from his apartment in Romania when we came to visit him from India and, unfortunately, left him with a whole new batch. As you can see for this interview, he didn't hold a grudge and we continue to be friends. I also have another member care book to review with you, so let's do the intro music and get started. Resiliency, a podcast that takes an inside look at enhancing the vitality and resiliency of field workers. Twice a month, co-hosts Steve Finley and Silas West bring you their conversations with long-term field workers or experts in the field of member care with the goal of encouraging you in your life and work of cross-cultural ministry. Hey everybody, welcome back to Resiliency. As previously mentioned, this is episode 59, and we try to drop a new episode every two weeks. If this is your first time listening to Resiliency, welcome, and we hope you enjoy it. If you're a regular listener, please think of someone who you could share this with. We would love more and more people to be able to hear from our amazing guests. We really want to hear from you, so leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram at Resiliency Podcast, or email us at resiliencypodcast at antiochwaco.com. Also, as I often say, your reviews and ratings will help others find the podcast, so if you have found this to be a helpful resource, help us make it possible for others to discover it. One of the best member care organizations out there is Barnabas International. We've had a couple of Barnabas guests on the podcast, and for those of you who are member care providers, be sure to check them out on the web and especially consider attending their PTM conference to meet other people in your field of work and find new resources. And speaking of resources, several years ago, Seven Barnabas friends and co-workers got together and put their life experiences and best practices down in a book that, in my opinion, is a must-read for anyone with a heart for caring for field workers. The name of the book is Tender Care. It's practical, candid, and a biblical conversation between these seven friends regarding the task of refreshing the hearts and souls of those who carry the good news of God's love to the nations. It's available on Barnabas' website, and I'll post a link in the notes. So without further ado, let's get on with today's episode. All right. Well, David Cronick, welcome to our podcast, Resiliency. It's a joy to have you here. And uh, you and I go way back, but Steve doesn't know you and most of our listeners don't know you. So tell us a little bit about you, what you've done cross-culturally and how many years has it been now? Since I've been working cross-culturally? Yeah. So I did my undergraduate studies in international studies international business and with that kind of did an independent study and traveled with the founder of word made flesh to asia in 1995 and i'd just been a christian for a few years and so this was uh, very shocking for me we were visiting different organizations in 10 countries working among the poor and just kind of seeing what they're doing learning from them um, but for me it was just shocking to kind of see the realities of the world outside of a nebraska suburb and um When I I came back from that uh, with severe culture shock and 
was really trying to figure out how do I follow Jesus in a world that looks like that? And since very much a call to serve and work amongst those that are extremely vulnerable, um, but not knowing how to do that. And so within a few months, um, I had the opportunity, uh, my, the rector from the University of Nebraska at Omaha, where I was studying, came, told me to go apply for a scholarship to study in Romania and Moldova. Um, and so all those doors kind of opened up. Uh, that was in 1996. Um, so a year later, I was in Romania and Moldova. I thought I would end up going back to Asia. Um, but after two weeks, or I think it was my first week in Romania, I just kind of said to God, I'll, I'll stay here until you call me someplace else. And so I was in Romania and Moldova and then back in Romania and then um, back in the States for just a few months where I reconnected with Word Made Flesh. And then January of 98 was back in Romania with Word Made Flesh where I served with them until August of 2018. And since then I've been serving in, there's a role, they, they call it director of operations, more administrative working out of the office here in Walmart, Kentucky. I was wondering if there was a more than what you've already said that something that you could say about what compelled you to go back to Romania. I think so. I did sense a very early in, you know, coming to faith. I was in this uh, church that had a mission mentality. And so I think when I became a Christian, it was just kind of uh, assumed by me that that's what Christians do. And then in the, that process of kind of reading scriptures and going to different places, really sensing God's heart for the poor, that was really central, I think, to my understanding of my calling and just Christian vocation. And then to Romanian specific, I think it's just that commitment. I just kind of said, I'll stay here until you move me someplace else. And there is, you know, just doors that opened and a lot of confirmation in the midst of, you know, doors not being opened in resistance but uh, enough of them opened up for me to be able to stay there as long as we did so david what have you done there in romania yeah so before i went um you know i visited in 1995 when uh, i visited asia where made flesh their home in chennai they were just opening it up just receiving children this is like january of 1995 um and they had in their little office on the wall a calendar and it said on you know thursdays you know every day it's something they prayed for on thursdays they prayed for romania um and so kind of through them i i was learning a bit about the situation with kids on the streets a huge problem with um pediatric aids uh coming out of you know communist times so before i went as a student i was praying for these for opportunities you know with the midst of the studies and the uh, the requirements of the program to be able to, you know, find Christians or churches or engage in some way with those uh, that I'd heard about. So the day I arrived in Romania, right outside my dorm room uh, is a boy sleeping on the streets and he spoke a little bit of English. So I started, you know, hanging out with him and his gang in the evenings and nights um, and practicing Romanian, hanging out with them, learning about life on the streets. And that became kind of the, the initial work was just building relationships, um, going into hospitals with children with HIV where they're just abandoned and very much uncared for and spending time and seeing how we could re respond. And so the early years, if we had a soccer ball, we'd bring it out and kick it around. If we had money, we'd buy sandwiches and eat with the kids. 
uh, we didn't have a whole lot. Um, and so that was also, I think, educational in that we could see we didn't necessarily need a whole lot to do something, to start something. And then out of that, uh, we started partnering with folks and set up homes for the children. So when I went back to Romania in January of 98, I lived uh, in an apartment with a friend of mine, Lau, and we just started taking kids off the streets to live with us, four, five, six, seven, eight kids. And that was chaos and crazy um, as they had been used to living on the streets and not in an apartment. And then from there, doing more structured uh, children's homes and setting up foster families when there wasn't any kind of foster system in Romania for the kids that had been abandoned in hospitals. And we applied that later to kids that were on the streets. And then from that, we started doing like um, day centers and community centers to do more. One, helping kids kind of get from the streets into homes and having some mediation process. And then also working in prevention to help uh, those that were vulnerable, kids that started to come out on the streets, um, getting to know their situation so we could help their families to help the kids to stay at home. Man, I'm hearing 10,000 stories right now. I'm going to have to really rein my thoughts in as far as where we could go. But our podcast is about resiliency. And just to hear that you've been working in that kind of environment for more than two decades, uh, you obviously, the Lord's blessed you to, you know, to walk in a, a measure of resiliency. What have been some of those challenges and hardships that you've faced through the years in the ministry there? <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah i think in this we had the expectation um you know we're, we we're intentionally going into the hard places you know there weren't other missionaries coming into the city we're working in there weren't um folks that were trying really to work amongst those that were the most poor especially in the cities where we were at and with kids that had HIV, you know, at that time, we were really just sitting with many of them as they died and just being present mm -hmm. to them and trying to help them when we were able, you know, trying to access medication. And thankfully, a lot of these kids, you know, 20, 30 of them are still connected with us today, you know, um, and doing as good as they can. <laughs> but uh, challenges, you know, were, were that, you know, just the challenges that the kids are facing of being beaten up on the streets or not having food or living in sewers or not having medication. And then situations with their families with, you know, just all that kind of the collapse of the economy under communism in this time of transition and poverty and lack of opportunity and jobs and lack of education, all, all that was just, these were the constant challenges. But I think um, <laughs> the deeper ones for us were internal. Uh, you know, we, we really sensed that a huge cause of poverty is the broken relationships or lack of relationships. And so our response to that has been intentional community and trying to model healthy relationships and trying to invite those that were, uh, you know, starting to um, make relationships with into friendship and um, but you know as we're making commitments to one another and intentional community we're also daily struggling with one another and our own brokenness and hurting one another wounding one another so th those would be you know real challenges and then working a lot with the churches as well um, the churches haven't always been the most open to those that are living on the streets. <laughs> I have a pastor come up to me at the end of a, of a service and say, if you ever come to the church with the kids, uh, the street kids sit in the back. 
Mm. <laughs> uh, we, I mean, we very much again committed to, to the churches, um, and you know, over the years, have seen a lot of development and growth and positivity. But also, that's where I think you know you just have higher expectations for uh, fellow fellow Christians. So maybe you also have some deeper wounds. Mm-hmm. since those as deeper challenges yeah is there a story about not, without exploiting anyone obviously that but being able to share a story that kind of exemplifies what some of these relationship challenges look like and maybe one that had a more of a redemptive end to it though not all of them did yeah uh, i mean so you know like we have kids that had maybe opportunities to continue making positive steps and growth and you know like one of them had uh some serious issues with um a birth defect and we were able to set up uh surgeons from western europe to come in and do a surgery for him but his you know his mom and grandmother just completely resisted that and so you know and seeing like other kids where we helped them come off the streets go through school and then they you know, trying to find jobs, not really able to end up uh, trafficking girls. So you see like the investment in this good that has been invested in them, but seeing that they use this for, for negatives, for bad, uh, you're, you kind of wonder, you know, would they have had that possibility if it, you know, to do bad, if it wasn't for, for us. So those would be, I mean, you know, you're ultimately not responsible for the decisions others make, but um, you see your connection to that. So that those are those are struggles for sure, and trying to love them in the midst of their bad decisions. Um, and you, know, you just, you know, it's you're in the midst of very broken relationships and people that have been exploited themselves. The positives, and there are lots of positives as well. I mean, I always, you know, you're like you're always trying to find like causality, like oh, we did this. If you know, this is the result of our discipleship. This is a result of our drop-in center. This is a result of our education. And I, I think the the there are goods. There's a lot of good things that we've done, really. And I think we've developed real good practices. Um, but I think the best thing that we've done has stayed, and just the long-term presence and providing stability for kids and families that haven't had a lot of stability. I think that's born fruit so like today we have on staff with us a girl who i met her uh i met her older siblings on the streets as they're begging on the bus and they were beautiful girls and i was just afraid that they'd end up on the streets you know permanently uh for some reason they you know invited me into their house it took me to their home i met their their mom and grandmother and they're living in a you know small room with 10 brothers and sisters and we start helping the older siblings come off the streets and we start helping the younger siblings start school. And so this is like our first generation of kids that started school at, you know, seven years old, they start at first grade when they're supposed to and go all the way through high school um, and seeing, you know, the ups and downs of their lives, but ultimately, you know, coming to faith. And so this girl, um, after she uh, went through high school, um, wanted to work with us and began you know started uh working in our uh, day center in the village and then started to lead it um but because of her experience and background i mean she just so connected to parents and was able to you know speak to them where they're at and help the kids 
really loves the Lord. And so also, you know, being able to be a model for the kids of this is, this is how your life can, this, this is a possible trajectory for you. And so has lots of respect for the kids. And again, I, I don't claim like, this is the fruit of our work. I think it's, it is the fruit of our work, you know, but not nothing in particular that we've done other than just being committed to long-term relationship. Mm. What, what have you as a, a leader for a team and you personally as well, what have you done to shepherd yourself and your team through this, the disappointments? I think a couple things. One is having realistic expectations, which uh, we've had to learn over time. And uh, so early on, this is again, when I was in India in 95, I had this book that I took with me called God So Loves the City. There's a chapter in this book that, um, uh, gives this report of an interview with Mother Teresa where the lady, it's a reporter, she comes up to Mother Teresa when they're opening up a home in LA and she asks her, well, why are you called to the poor? And Mother Teresa, without hesitation, says, I'm not called to the poor, I'm called to Jesus. And if he called me to the rich, I'd serve the rich. And for me, that was just like super clear in terms of, okay, I'm, I'm, in, I'm called into this vocation of serving among the poor, but ultimately I'm called to Jesus and I ultimately can't meet these needs. Um, they're beyond me. And if I tried, it would exhaust me. And so we've, again, like we had to learn to have realistic expectations, realistic boundaries, realistic work weeks, <clears throat> all these things that in the early years were burning us out. But I do think some of the good things we were able to do was to really focus on cultivating intimacy with with God, with Jesus, with the spirit and like kind of making that we had that as our first hour of the day, every day is to come together and just pray. And the hope being that anything that we do kind of comes out of that place. I think that that did um, continue to say like this ultimately isn't our work. We're participating in God's work. We're ultimately, you know, not able to redeem anyone. God is um, also doing this together. So the um, this, Commitment to community, I think, has been something that's um, given us sustainability. Um, and not only, I think it's a proper response to those that are suffering from broken relationships. I think it's a proper way to do mission, but it's also practically helped us to be able to do it for a long time um, by, you know, supporting one another, caring for one another, understanding that we're not doing this by ourselves. So those would be some some of the initial things uh, again like within the community uh, we, we started to after a few years we, we said we can't just be committed to community um, because the word community can mean so many things to so many people and it's used so often that no one really knows what it means and so we actually started naming our commitments to one another and making promises to one another and naming the sacrifices we're making and celebrating those um, and no you know so like people leaving you know, another nation or moving away from family or in Romania, our staff choosing not to go into higher paying jobs, but to remain themselves vulnerable at the low income that, you know, we were able to pay, but naming these sacrifices and celebrating them in the, in the, you know, the cost of, of discipleship and the cost of ministry that that's been really helpful um, within community, you know, that then there's the place for celebration and that's comes with doing gatherings together and retreats together and regular meals together. Um, but also like joking together, playing together, good humor goes a long way. But like I said, like it's not ideal. Uh, so we're, we're daily hurting one another. We're often saying, you know, like 
I don't want to serve with this person. Um, but then recognizing that God's called us together. And so being able to name hurts and practice forgiveness, this, this, this would be like, I think the core of being able to do this for a long time. We were going to ask you a question about some of the keys to resiliency that you've practiced and you just did it. I mean, you just, you just spelled out so many things that are key to you guys making it for this long haul in a, in a very challenging ministry. Wow. I think other ones for, for, for keys to resiliency uh, for us, and this, this took us a bit to, to move into, but like Silas and I, I mean, going into this with Roommate Flesh, uh, we were reading things like by Henry Nguyen and other folks that are just like, you need to posture yourself as a learner. But I think one of the things that we started to learn is that the poor teach us how to survive in the context of poverty. Like they're there because they've learned some of these these techniques of resiliency and so rather than seeing like we've got solutions for you uh it's that uh, with resiliency in, in particular like um really learning how people survive and so like when i have um uh, folks that will come from abroad so expats that start to work with us there i basically tell them like for the first three years have very low expectations of what you can offer and just have expectations of what you can learn and part of that learning process is language and culture which without that again like the ability for folks to stay long-term is just greatly diminished, but also encourage them to drink from the wells that the people that we're serving among drink from. And so when folks go to church and they would tell me like, um, this doesn't feed me. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's trying to learn the process of, you know, how, how, why are people going and how can you start to be fed by, you know, those wells, which that takes time. Uh, but uh, you know that's that that that's true of of um, just how the folks that are living in these poor neighborhoods are dependent on one another and caring for one another and you know sometimes sacrificing for one another. This these became lessons for us as well. David, I know that when we talk about community, there's kind of an extra level of community that you experienced. And remember, in two thousand three, we were in Amsterdam together, sharing a room at a conference, and you shared with me some news about a relationship that was blossoming in your life and, uh, and it developed into a marriage. So can you, I mean, without uh, throwing Lanuza under the bus too much, can you, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about just what it's meant to, to be married to somebody from the culture that you have given yourself to, to serve in? Yeah. So other stories from Amsterdam would be our snoring neighbor in the room next to us, or um, Silas um, sneezing on the person in the row in front of us. Um, so I've got other stories, just if you want to do a second um, follow-up <laughs> podcast <laughs> on Amsterdam. Uh, but yes, that, so I, I knew my wife, Lenitza, I knew her um, for four years really well. We were good, good friends and, uh, you know, wasn't necessarily, I wasn't thinking of, you know, our relationship becoming anything other than, than really good friends. And she was serving on our board in, in Romania <clears throat> and then, after we got married, uh, joined and became an educator with us. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, it's been a, you know, a great blessing. Linus is an awesome person, extremely emotionally sensitive and healthy. And um, she, after doing elementary school teaching, she went back and did her degree in psychology and master's in clinical counseling and done play therapy with our kids and all this. So for me, that's, she's also been um, uh, a teacher in learning for uh, learning how she interacts and relates and loves the kids loves the parents and you know they would just 
seek her out. So she started working full time with, with us at our center after a few years of, of us being married. So remind me your question again. What was your question on? Well, just like what's that brought to the table in terms of st- sustainability and resiliency? So I, before I got married, um, Romanians received me extremely well. So after I finished my um, study abroad program, I was in the country for six months without a visa, without money. One month I slept on 23 different beds and everyone was super hospitable to me. And uh, another family that ended up inviting me to live with on their, you know, sleep on their couch for a few months as I helped them uh, as they were developing a um, program with kids on the streets. So Romanians, they received me super well. After I got married, I was also received into a family and Linus's family, you know, they very much just kind of received me as their own. And that does give a lot of stability. Um, so one of the things that I do when we have discovery teams come uh, is I take them to a monastery that's a bit outside the city. It's in the same village where we have a day center and we walk through the cemetery at this monastery. There's lots of things to reflect on <clears throat> at this monastery, but one of them is uh that when you make your vows, you also get your, your tombstone. You also get your grave site. And so many of those tombstones will have the name of the person and their birth date, but it doesn't have their, their death, their, their, the day that they die because they're still alive. And so part of their spiritual practice is actually cultivating their grave site. And that's like super um, illustrative of the commitment to, place and space and community and so you know when my uh, parents-in-law bought their gravesite a few years back and built kind of the tomb um, they've also built one for me um, so there is uh, a lot of stability with that like you you see the trajectory of your life there's a meditation on your mortality and so anyway that that is something it's like a deep deeper rootedness that I feel like I've had through um joining Linux's family. David, you mentioned about the, the early years, uh, the burnout, or the, the came, at least coming up against burnout. Uh, what were some of the decisions that you made during that, that time, those season of the early years that enabled you to stay through it, even when burnout was inevitable, when people were coming and going, when support wasn't that great? Um, well, you know, I do tell people that I quit regularly. <laughs> maybe weekly (laughs) I just never left but uh uh and that's okay I think just to recognize like you're kind of at the end of yourself um I can remember this one time we were working we're doing we just bought this old house and we're renovating the center we you've seen the center Silas and we were doing so much work like probably 40 hours a week just on the construction of this this center but then also doing all of our activities with the kids on the streets going out meeting with them on the streets, doing activities at the center with kids that we were helping get into school. And I remember <clears throat> going up to the mountains just for like a, a few days <clears throat> trying to get away. And uh, for the first two days, I just slept like all day long. Um, <laughs> and I would wake up in the middle of the day and realize, okay, this probably isn't normal. <laughs> so be, starting to become aware, like I need to make some changes, which again, was just like structuring our week, having daily you know weekly practices of sabbath eventually we started to to practice sabbatical taking a few months away that also was really healthy i think uh, also starting to do like some education on who we are and some of the internal work of self-discovery and like seeing you know the different 
ways God's created us and the different ways we interact with community. Some of this helped us to know how to relate to one another and set, you know, even personal boundaries in more healthy ways. I think all those are real significant. Why I love your stories, David. Why don't you share with us a story or two about impact, you know, whether it be how you guys' lives have been or being impacted continuously through obeying Jesus as you live and minister cross-culturally or maybe how other lives have been impacted. Yeah, so I think early on, uh, like even those that first summer in Romania, just hanging out on the streets with kids and sleeping a few nights uh, on the streets uh, with them. And they, uh, you know, the, this, this one night is real late. It was right before shops were closing and this gang of kids, they all come together and they kind of give their leader all the money that they've earned that day with begging or odd jobs. And they uh, take the money and buy bread and like this fat, the cheap meat and, and, uh, mustard and anyway they sit down and outside the shops are closing and then they just like all share it and I think there was things like that that were really educational and in like saying you know these kids know more maybe about hospitality and um, caring for each other than again me coming from a more uh, individualistic upbringing new and so kind of thinking uh, instead of just like i'm bringing the gospel to these kids that um there's actually uh god gone that who's gone before me and who's um discipling me and inviting me into a deeper knowledge of who god is through you know these unlikely kids uh, that we are typically going to for lessons in discipleship conceptually that would be a, a big conceptual change so when we started to learn about like the missio day and that this is god's mission then we we really stopped using that language of we're bringing the kingdom or expanding the kingdom um and instead using language of we are praying for the kingdom to come or we're seeing the kingdom invade and break in in ways that are shocking um the kingdom of god belongs to the poor or we are I think participating with those that are extremely vulnerable and finding that um, there is a, you know, a, a real love of God for them and, you know, being able to, to kind of witness that from the outside and say, this is a sign of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you another uh, story. This was um, some of the kids that they'd been in the, in the school program. So some of their older siblings had been on the streets and these were kids that we'd gotten into school, working a lot with their families to keep in the home, but, you know, extremely, vulnerable like many of them don't have electricity some of their parents are doing sex work some of them are being raised by grandparents but uh they, they came this is Linux's first grade group and they came back from school one day and they'd seen a family that was kicked out of their home so they were basically taking some of these homes that the government had taken during communism in the 50s and 60s and were giving them back to the family that originally owned it but in doing that they're you know, those that had been living in these homes don't have any place else to go. And so they're kicked out and they set up some shacks on the streets, uh, really just, just cellophane shacks. And the kids uh, were coming home from school and saw this and um, they, <laughs> they said, uh, you know, what, what do we, you know, what, 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 what can we do? And so Lenuta started talking with them and said, okay, well, what, what can, what can you do? What, what do you think God's calling you to do? So they all had like this allocation from the state for like, milk money at school 
And so instead of using it all for their snacks and milks, they, they uh, would bring part of it back and started putting it in a box and they'd pass the box around. And <laughs> as the box went around one day, one of the kids looked at Lenitsa and said, are you going to put anything in? And so again, they're like uh, advocating for generosity. Then they uh, take the money after about a week of kind of getting it all together. And then they go and buy food and then they go and bring it to this family. And the family uh, that's living on the streets in the shack just started to cry. And they said, you're the first people that have come and asked us what we need and have uh, tried to, to help us. And so again, you would like to think that the church would have been on the cutting edge of this, or there would be something of the government, you know, helping out those that are vulnerable. But it was kids that had very little that were, again, teaching us uh, ways of generosity and really knowing what would best bless them. So in a lot of ways, we, we just felt like the kids were leading us into the heart of God. Hmm. First graders. First graders. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Jesus. David, um, you and I and, well, Andy and Andrea were on the podcast like a couple months ago. We, when we jumped into this, we made a lot of mistakes at the beginning and didn't do things right, the right way. And in some ways still paying the price for, for some of it. But uh, what is something that the older you now that you are wise and smart, a very smart man, uh, what's the what's something the older you would like to tell the younger you so that you wouldn't make so many mistakes? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, I've been saying the past few years that I, I don't know that the I don't know that I would get along with the 22 year old version of myself. <laughs> so the last few years, I've been trying to reconcile myself with that, um, and God's given me some opportunities to do that. Um, but you know, I think. I think it's okay. I do. I would continue to say like to, it's okay to make mistakes. Um, it's okay. Like, I think early on we had the gift of naivety and I do think that's a gift. Uh, and I think uh, sometimes when we're so afraid of what might happen, we don't do anything at all. And so I think there, I think there is, it's, it is okay to go out and do it. And we, we made mistakes, but I think, you know, part of it is just realizing that we're, you know, you're, you're going to make mistakes. It's okay. Um, you try not to do anything that's going to be, um, you know, ultimately detrimental to, to others. But, and, and again, like Ray Mayhew, I had people like him and really good mentors. And so I would continue to, you know, tell folks like get mentors, get people that have done this and know, you know, they've been through this, you know, like, like you, I think sharing these experiences. Um, I, so the one thing I would say, like, that I wish I would have been more attentive to others in the midst of crisis. Mm. So looking back at like the, the, the moments of high crises, it was just so hard to take care of myself, I think, or to get beyond myself, maybe. Um, but I think, I think it, that might've helped me. Um, by helping others, by focusing on them, but I think it will also been it would have been helpful for them as well. I, I think some of the 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 wounding that I did of others uh, sometimes happened in those times where I wasn't as as attentive. Great word. What what would be the one big takeaway that you would want our listeners to remember today, David? If they didn't remember anything else from this interview. Well, the I don't know. 
I think uh, so. I, I haven't listened to enough of your podcast to know like how you all are talking about resiliency. But one thing that I've been kind of wrestling with as I'm doing some of the studies here at the seminary is um, I'm studying a lot about development and doing projects that are helping those that are extremely vulnerable to have a little bit better life. And what I'm wrestling with is like the, the, you have this promise on one side of Jesus who's promising abundant life. And then at the same time saying, take up your cross and follow me. And I think that there's a, a real strong tension with that. Um, and I think you can see it within conversations of resiliency as well, where you can justify a lot of things in the name of resiliency that could be self-centered and self-care, you know? Um, and so the, the question is like, how, how do we live lives that are abundant, but also how do we look at resiliency as more of a collective and communal um, project rather than just an individual one so that, you know, uh, my resiliency isn't at the cost of others and my resiliency isn't centered, but the resiliency of those that are most vulnerable is. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, though, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is something I keep coming up against with, um, you know, any conversation on, on even church growth or church planting or evangelism or uh, caring for the poor. It's, this is all about development, but um, you know, when, how does this look when we're, our discipleship is to follow the, the path of the cross, which doesn't necessarily mean us killing ourselves, but it means uh, loving in a way that continues to be faithful, even in the face of that, which might, weaken or lessen our resilience yeah the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings yeah precisely sounds like you've been there and done that for faithfully for a long time now david i'd love for you just to end our time together by praying yeah. for us and imparting some of that heart of jesus for the poor today even yeah i'd be happy to uh, trying god we thank you for um your love and for being love and for modeling um, who we are to be. We thank you that you are at work in the world and that you've graced us with the real privilege to participate in your mission. We pray that um, you'd continue to sensitize us to be able to say yes to that, to be able to take steps into that. We do pray for the grace to be faithful over the long haul uh, for resiliency. We pray that um, that would not be just our experience, but it would be the experience of those that are living very precarious lives today, that they would be able to hear your good news, experience it, and walk into deep, abundant life. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, David. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you for listening to Resiliency. Special thanks to Antioch Music and their original song, Nothing Can Stop, for our intro and our outro music. Tune in again in two weeks for our next episode of Resiliency. Resiliency.